Hello and welcome. This is Dan Pierce, and you are on the Mentally Fit Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Lucia Capacchioni, who is an early pioneer in the area of expressive arts therapies. She's been doing this since the early 70s. Arts therapy has only been around since the late 60s. And she has her own unique style that she will tell us all about and some exercises that you can do right here, right now, today to start connecting with yourself, your inner child, and really exercising areas of your brain that are often left unnoticed and disregarded. So it's really amazing work and transformative work. So I'm really excited to introduce you to Dr. Lucia and to learn about this style of expressive arts therapy with you. So without further ado, let's jump right in. My name is Dr. Lucia Capacchioni, and uh, I am an art therapist, also uh, a pioneer in the field of expressive arts therapies, and I um, am an author of uh, 23 books. I train professionals uh, to use my methods, uh, primarily my creative journal method, which involves drawing and writing in a journal and also using the non-dominant hand, and that's certainly something we'll talk about today. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah, you were highly recommended uh, by a member of our therapist community as somebody to talk to about connecting with your inner child and embracing your inner child. And admittedly, this is not an area that I have any formal training on. I've done a little inner child work myself, but I am really excited to hear your process for discovering and embracing your inner child. Great. I was actually the first one to um, develop a consistent, comprehensive program in what I now call inner family, inner child work. And I started that in the 70s with oh, wow. my own personal healing. So this method grew out of uh, my struggle with a life-threatening illness. I know a great deal about sheltering in place because I was sick for almost a whole summer with a mysterious mm. condition and um, doctors weren't able to help me. So I had to find my own way through that illness. And what I arrived at was this inner family, inner child work. Wow, so tell me about that revelation. How did that happen? How did you come into the inner child work well, in that situation? I, I was an artist originally in my first career and in my second career, I was a child development specialist. So it's kind of interesting that I brought both of those two backgrounds with me into the field of psychology when I changed careers. And um, the work that happened for me personally when I was ill had to do with transforming my art sketchbooks, which I always had around, and my felt markers and crayons and that sort of thing, into um, what I came to call my journal, uh, my creative journal. And the um, sketchbooks were not about making art. They were about uh, just uh, drawing and writing my feelings out and some very, what seemed to me to be very strange artwork came out at that time. It was not artwork that I recognized as my style mm. or, you know, anything I, I understood. <laughs> Interesting. What kind of style was it? 
Well, it looked, uh, I guess the best word would be surreal. Uh, it looked more like images from dreams that seemed very um, no, non-rational, non-sequential, just kind of odd things together in a drawing that, you know, I didn't really understand. And it certainly wasn't decorative art. It was um, definitely coming from a, a different place than the artwork I'd done as a poster designer, or greeting card designer, that sort of thing. It was definitely psychologically uh, impactful and, um, you know, really loaded with meaning, but it was like in a language I didn't understand. <laughs> wow. So you came into that process uh, naturally, or did you already have some kind of art therapy training of some kind? No, I never heard of art therapy, really, when I um, discovered this. I was uh, doing th this in my sketchbooks, and I shared it with a friend, and she said, you're doing art therapy. And I mm. I, I registered, oh, basket weaving in mental hospitals, which is <laughs> <laughs> more yeah. occupational therapy, really, or recreational therapy. And she said, no, 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 uh, there is a field. This is 1973, and the American Art Therapy Association wasn't founded until 1969. So we're talking oh, wow. about a very new field at that time. And she said, no, there's there's a field of psychotherapy in which the client uh, makes some kind of art from the unconscious, sort of like working with dreams, but making art. And then they talk about it to the therapist and you're writing about it in your journal instead of talking to somebody about it. Mm. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. Wow. So it was brand new at the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And what kind of she discoveries? She's the one that said, you should become an art therapist. And I kind of looked at her like she was crazy. And then, well, I don't know. And then I did some research and realized that there was a field that did exactly what I was doing in my journal. Wow. So how did things progress from there? Well, um, from there, I actually at that time went into psychotherapy with a woman who was doing a combination of gestalt therapy where you would move from chair to chair and talk from different parts of yourself or converse with other people in an imaginary setting and she also did transactional analysis and introduced me to the concept of the inner child and the inner parents so i was introduced to all of that in those sessions with uh, her name was bond Wright, and um she had me sit down on the floor after i think my first session with a big pad of newsprint and a crayon and she asked me to write down using my non-dominant hand what i was going to do that week to apply what i had learned about my inner child and i mm. tried to switch hands because i'm right-handed and she put that crayon in my left hand but she did it intentionally she said no i want you to use that hand and i i wrote a very simple block lettering it looked like a kindergartner or first grader and i wrote that i wanted to feel my feelings and know that they were okay and, mm. and that uh, and i really regressed while i was doing that i started lisping the way i had as a little kid and i would sort of readjusted my position on the floor to sit the way I did as a as a preschooler really and I felt very young while I was writing it I really regressed to being about five or maybe six 
Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like really tapping into that part of your brain that is still that inner child. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So how would you, to somebody who's never heard of inner child work before or doesn't even know what the term means, how would you describe it? What is it exactly? Well, my definition of the inner child is number one, it's our physical sensations. So when we are aware of our body, when we're feeling pain or pleasure or any sensation in the body, we are in our inner child. Okay. So it's very physical. And when we are feeling emotions, we are feeling our inner child. So any emotions, any feelings that are of an emotional nature. So physical sensations, emotions, and creativity in the sense of spontaneity. Um, creativity at its most basic level of a kind of playfulness, improvisation, curiosity. That aspect of creativity is our inner child expressing in our lives. And the fourth element of the inner child to me is spiritual experiencing. Not dogma, uh, not any religious canon of beliefs, but the actual experience of a higher power or a spirit. Um, Sometimes we have that experience in nature, sometimes with the arts, but it's a very personal and very experiential way of of, uh, knowing that there is something larger than our own selves and our own ego. Yeah. So in that situation where you had learned how to do inner child work for the first time, what kind of revelations or experiences were you having as a result? Well, after having those first couple of experiences with my therapist where she had me write with my non-dominant hand, I was at home uh, journaling, which I had started doing about three months before I went into therapy. And I started uh, getting an idea for a retrospective exhibit of my art from my art career. And immediately I heard this critical voice in my head, which I call the critical parent now. And the voice kept saying, oh, you got to get out and get a job. You've been sick too long and you need to make some money and blah, 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 blah. And you can't make anything this. And And my uh, left hand, my non-dominant hand, literally grabbed the pen (laughs) out of my dominant hand and started sassing back to that voice in my head. Mm. It literally answered back, very bratty, sassy voice. And then there was this dialogue between both hands. I switched the pen back and forth. And the critic kept criticizing and the kid kept uh, rebelling and answering back. And by the end of that dialogue, which took several pages, I came to a place of quiet inside. I felt very calm all of a sudden. And with my dominant hand, I wrote, a reflection on what had just happened. And I drew a little fetal, it looked like a little fetus. Mm. And I realized in that observation writing, what I call reflective writing, that this illness had a meaning. It was about rebirth. Mm. 
And I also realized that I had discovered the root cause of all creative blocks. And that is this critical parent inside that blocks us from following our heart and following our instincts and our intuition into our most creative self. And that was like finding a new continent. I can't wow. tell you what a huge thing that was. I mean, I just sat there stunned at what I had discovered. Wow, that's amazing. And there's a lot to get into there. Imagine, um, imagine for the first time doing this and experiencing that conversation between both sides. That must have felt a little, uh, for lack of a better word, crazy. How did you feel in the middle of that? Well, actually, no, I had actually felt crazier when I was doing those drawings that didn't mean anything mm. rational. Uh, and I remember sharing those with um, a couple of friends and and they they said, yeah, this looks like therapeutic art or, you know, one of my daughters, my oldest daughter said, these are like brain drawings. And I think what she was trying to say was they were drawings from the right brain. Yeah. You know, and on those days, the right and left brain stuff was not a household concept, you yeah. know, uh, Roger Sperry hadn't won the uh, Nobel Prize yet in 1981, right? This is yeah. 1973 that I'm doing this stuff. And I didn't really know about his research or about accessing the right brain and the emotions and all of the stuff that has to do with the unconscious through the right brain. That was not in the, uh, you know, in the public yet. So uh, people told me about that after I discovered this work. And they said, oh, you know, you've got to look into Roger Sperry's work. I had a student in one of my workshops who knew Roger Sperry. Mm. Uh, her husband was on the faculty at Caltech. And she took a workshop with me and told him how the workshop had changed her thinking and her feeling and her behaving. Wow. And he, he said to her, oh, you've opened up your right brain by doing this non-dominant hand stuff. Nice. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, they're not... Uh you know, that's, it's becoming more and more popular. People are more aware of the difference between left brain and right brain and how they interact. Um, but I think a lot of people don't, still don't know about that. Could you explain uh, how that works and the connection between the left brain and the right brain and how it ties in to this work? Yes. And of course, to the hands. And the hands. Well, um, we know, we've known for a very long time, long before Roger Sperry's research, um, from watching people who had had brain injuries, that if you have injury to your left brain, it's very likely you're going to have language problems. Why? Because the left brain houses the language centers, and those language centers make it possible for us to speak, to learn language um, and to put sentences together and communicate with each other through what we call language, right? Mm -hmm. um, spoken language, written language. And um, if there is damage to the right brain, what they discovered early on was that people would have problems with visual spatial functions. For instance, they might go to their house after leaving a clinic or a hospital and they'd get, they wouldn't know where the rooms were. They wouldn't know where anything was. Uh, their memory for visual spatial 
reality was impaired. Uh, they would also um, have problems with emotional expression. Hmm. Okay, so somebody with right brain damage or an underdeveloped right brain would be very flat emotionally. So let's say there was a fire in the house and, you know, the best thing to do is shout fire and tell everybody to get out. But if somebody can't shout fire with emotional impact, it's not going to communicate. If it's the person says fire, nobody in the room is going to take them seriously mm -hmm. because the emotion is not there. Much of our communication is emotional. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's all right brain stuff. So people who are uh, very robot-like and don't express um, emotions are underdeveloped in their right brain. They have not developed that part of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And your right brain is connected to your left hand. Is that right? Well, it is. It is. But there's a complication in terms of my work because I always use the term non-dominant hand. That means the hand that never learned to write. Okay. So it never got hardwired to the language centers of the left brain. Okay. Now, left-handed people, they're, uh, if they're writing with their left hand, then that hand got hardwired to those language centers, didn't it? Okay. That makes sense. Otherwise, they couldn't write sentences or, you know, use grammar or communicate. Um, but when left-handed writers switch hands and use their non-dominant hand, which is the right hand, they um, have, get the same results that right-handed people do when they switch to their left hand. Interesting. And I'm the only person on the planet who has done the amount of what we call anecdotal research by observing thousands and thousands and thousands of people either in workshops, my clients, or all the readers that have written to me, because I've got 23 books out there and most of them have this technique in it. So they all tell me the same thing, you know, whether they're right or left-handed, their right brain opens up when they use my techniques of drawing and writing with the non-dominant hand. They start feeling their emotions more deeply. Mm. Um, they become more creative they discover talent for visual art that they didn't know they had. Uh, there's all kinds of, and inner wisdom just comes pouring out of that hand. You know, guidance, uh, messages that are really clear, almost as if some ancient sage is standing there giving them guidance in their life. Wow. And, um, and that's across the board, regardless of whether a person is right-handed or left-handed for writing. That's really interesting. Um, it brings to mind this book that I read called uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. I'm sure you've heard of it by Absolutely. Oliver Sacks. Yeah, I love Sacks' work. It's yeah. fabulous. Yeah, and it's amazing. <laughs> uh, for people that haven't read it, definitely check it out. It is, uh, they talk a lot about uh, people with brain damage that have had their right brain and left brain, uh, like not severed, but the connection between the two severed right. so that they're working independently. And one of the stories that I remember really well is um, when they were dealing with somebody that had this condition, they had asked them verbally to stand up and walk across the room. And then when they came back, they asked them by writing, which is more of a left brain, or is it I believe it's left brain, right? Left, 
That's a left brain function. Yes, yep. they asked them by writing, why did you stand up? And since the left brain was not aware of it, um, they just made up a reason. Oh, there's a whole bunch of stories like that in Ornstein, uh, who was one of the first authors that I read on the subject of right and left hemisphere functioning. Um, and that surgery is called a commissurotomy, where they actually um, separate the, the brain uh, connection. And of course, what I'm doing is the opposite. I'm helping people open up new neuronal pathways between the right and the left brain. That's what a scientist at UCLA uh, told me I was doing. Uh, she was a brilliant uh, kinesiology researcher at UCLA, Dr. Valerie Hunt. And when I asked her for a scientific opinion about what I was doing with this, especially the non-dominant hand writing, she said, well, you cannot use just one side of the brain when you're writing with your non-dominant hand. Yeah. It's impossible. She said, you have to use both sides of the brain. You're pulling the language function from the left brain, but with non-dominant hand writing, the content, the messages are coming from the right brain. Interesting. So, so by using, using your yeah. left hand or your non-dominant hand really gets both sides of your brain to start working together to Absolutely. help communicate better? Yes, for writing. Now, when you're uh, drawing and doing artwork with your non-dominant hand, the emphasis is more on the right brain. Why? Because that's a right brain function. Visual, spatial perception, composition, uh, the use of color, all that visual stuff. The emotional aspect of expressing through art, which is always a, an element in art, um, that's all right brain. Mm. So if you really want to open up your right brain, just scribble and, and draw, especially scribbling, because that, that doesn't have much left brain significance. It, you're not drawing symbols. You're not drawing pictures of things that are symbolic or representational. You're just scribbling. And that's strictly color, shape, line, the language of art on the paper. So that's a you know non-dominant hand drawing. That'll take you there to the right brain. But if you want to use both sides of the brain, then you can do this dialogue format, or you can simply write with your non-dominant hand. Hmm. And that will force you to use both sides of the brain. Nice. I'm really excited to try that out. Um... So one of my, my takeaways from that book uh, that I mentioned, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, um, was that we might not have as much control over our actions as we might think we do, and that we might be um, sort of making up reasons for why we do things after the fact, but being driven primarily by subconscious desires. Can you speak to that and tell us you know, how much actual... Um, agency do we have over our own actions? Are we just kind of following our subconscious desires and then writing a script or a narration to fit that? Or is there choice involved? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that we do rationalize a lot of what we do. Um, and I remember the story that Ernstine told about the, the uh, snowball and the mailbox <laughs> where um, there, they had a, a test with a questionnaire and, you know, somebody puts a snowball in a mailbox and then they have a lot of, uh, you know, questions about why. And, mm -hmm. um, and none of them made any sense. You know, they were just rationalizations for why you would put a snowball in a mailbox. Yeah. And these were people who had had the, the brain hemispheres uh, disconnected. So, yeah, it, it just didn't make any sense. 
what I have discovered in my inner, going back to the inner child, inner family work, yeah, is that we uh, are missing an aware ego or what I call the director of the movie of our lives. Okay, mm. we have a lot of subpersonalities that tend to take over. Uh, our inner child might take over when we're feeling extremely emotional. Yeah, and we might need another part to come in to be appropriate in that situation. So the example I love to give to my clients is when I'm going to sit down with a publisher and I'm going to go over a publishing contract with them with the idea to hopefully sign that contract and move into, um, you know, a legal uh, arrangement where I'm going to write a book for them and they're going to maybe give me an advance or whatever. I... I'm going to take what I call in the inner family construct, my protective parent into that meeting. Mm -hmm. And I want my protective parent who's very non-emotional, very impersonal, very business-like. I call it the child's rights advocate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Your inner and child so, right advocate. I like yeah, that. Yeah. Now the inner child is going to be involved in writing that book. Okay. There's no question. My creative inner child is going to be there. And especially if it's a child, a, a book about the inner child, or it's going to have inner child work in it. My inner child is definitely going to be there when I write the book. Yeah. But when I craft this contract with this publisher, I need to take, you know, it's more like a lawyer type who's going to go in and read the contract unemotionally and then look at certain elements. Like, let's say the deadline they give me is one that my inner child goes crazy about. No, 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 that's not enough time. Yeah. You know, if, 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 we, if we do that deadline, I mean, and I can hear that voice in my head when I'm reading the contract, right? Mm. Oh, 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 if we do that deadline, we're not gonna have any time to do any painting. There won't be any time to go out in nature or have any exercise. You know, it takes at least three months to write a book and they're giving you two months? No, 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 we can't do that, okay? Now, I'm not gonna speak from that voice in that meeting with the publisher. Right. I'm going to bring my protective parent in and say, you know, this, this uh, clause right here, I think we need to look at that. Mm. Um, that deadline isn't really going to work for me. I'm going to need another month, you know? Yeah. And I'm going to say this all in a very adult voice. It's not going to be intimidating. It's not coming from a critical parent. See, I could come in from a critical parent and say, are you kidding me? Look at that deadline. That's ridiculous. Yeah. What are you guys thinking about? I mean, really, you know, and then I'm going to put them down. I'm going to criticize them for even, you know, considering that I would have to get this book done in two months. That yeah. doesn't work very well, does it? An inner child having a temper tantrum wouldn't work very well either. Probably not. <laughs> right. So when I go into that meeting, I make a conscious choice. Yeah, the inner child's going to be sitting on the sidelines. I definitely need her opinion, but she is not running the show. The protective parent is coming in now and taking care of business, all right? Nice. Yeah, and I think it's important, too, that you are bringing your inner child to the table and not just saying it's not time for you, right? You're just bringing in extra um, personas, right. if you will, to support them. And I think that's a big, uh, makes a big difference. Exactly, exactly. And it's interesting. I did a lot of coaching and worked at Walt Disney Imagineering for 10 years. And I was a career coach there and a creativity consultant. And I worked with a lot of artists there. 
And um, I would work with them on this inner family work because the artists who were designing theme park uh, pavilions and rides had to be able to communicate that to the people who were going to invest. Mm, yeah. And if they couldn't articulate that ride and tell a story along with their beautiful artwork and get these people excited and enthusiastic, those people weren't going to put money into it. Mm-hmm. So I had to show these artists how to become salespeople. And that's not their bailiwick. They, oh, no, I can't do that. No, you have to do it because you're the one that knows the ride. You made it up. Your inner yeah. child created that idea. And look, Disneyland is for the inner child in everyone, isn't it? Yeah. That's so amazing. These, so many yeah. applications. Yeah. And these people with the money, they want to be razzle-dazzled. They want to be entertained. They don't want you standing there with some left brain marketing guy, uh, you know, rattling off a list of benefits of this ride. That's not going to hack it. You know, right. that doesn't work. So you've got to be able to bring that inner child into this other realm and uh, be able to use it effectively for the purpose of getting these investors excited about your ride. And I taught them to do that. It was very exciting to see that change in them. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Um, I never would have thought that inner child work would have a place in a sales meeting, but that makes total sense. Well, here's the thing that I tell all my clients, because I do a lot of coaching. I created a method called visioning coaching that starts with doing a magazine photo collage of what it is you want to manifest in your life, whether it's a relationship, a house like the one I live in now, uh, or a career or whatever it is, a business, a product. Um that you have to bring your creative inner child into it. If that's not there, your business enterprise is going to be missing its heart and soul. Mm. And um, so that's what makes a business exciting. I heard a lot of stories about Walt Disney when I was working there. I never knew him personally, but I worked with people who worked with him. And, you know, they talked about how personable he was and how uh, he connected with people. And his inner child obviously was very alive. And, um, and he created Disneyland because he was tired of sitting on the sidelines at kiddie parks with his kids. Mm, yeah. He wanted something for the whole family to get involved in. And that was, it was a very personal motivation. He had an experience of the inner child and himself getting left out while his kids were having fun. Mm, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. And so that's how brilliant ideas come about. Uh, I worked for Charles Eames, the famous furniture designer, and he had a very strong inner child. You know, it was very obvious working there that, that he was having a good time. And uh, the, the whole atmosphere of the place, and we did all kinds of things like exhibits for IBM and training films for them. And I remember um, we really sold an idea to Mr. Watson from IBM, the president, because we had a device that had a ball that dropped through a bunch of uh, xylophone slats. And it played that song in a country garden. And then the ball would hit the floor. But it would go through all these slats that had been set up you had to use a pneumatic tube to push the ball way up and then it would drop down and play that song. Well, Watson was captivated by that. 
And we all used to laugh in the office because whenever a visitor came, you'd no matter where you were in the office, you'd hear that toy playing because Charles would always show <laughs> that off. And we'd go, oh, no, not that again. And one of the uh, managers in the back said to me one time, okay, you guys can moan and groan all you want, but that was the toy that got us the IBM contracts. Yeah. Yeah. That's genius. Yeah. Because <laughs> I like it. These people from these, what you would consider left brain companies, IBM, right? What do they represent? It's business, right? Yeah, very left brain. But the, the founders and the, the movers and shakers in those companies, the entrepreneurs, the charismatic leaders, they've got a strong inner child. And that mm. inner child wants to be fed, entertained, and it wants mm. to be fun. And so when it comes to, now this is an interesting story at, uh, when I was at Imagineering, uh, Marty Sklar told me this story. Um, he was the president at the time about IBM coming there to visit. And um, for some reason, the people who set up the meeting said, oh, we got to get all this clutter out of here. We've got all this stuff around and all this artwork from different projects and we've got to clean the space up. So they were trying to act like IBM, right? Well, IBM didn't come to Disney looking for IBM. They wanted Disney. They wanted fun. Mm -hmm. And so the meeting was dead. I mean, Marty said that it was like you could just see them practically falling asleep. And then one of the IBM guys find, finds a little puzzle, like a Rubik's Cube thing that somebody had left behind on a shelf behind him. And he picked it up and started playing with it in his lap under the table. And then he passed it over to the guy next to him. And these IBM guys are passing this puzzle around. And they're not paying attention to the meeting anymore because the meeting right. is dying. It's just dead. And yeah. So Marty called another meeting another day and had them back again. But he had them set up the room with all the artwork and all the stuff that had been there before. Nice. And this, that was that whole smart. It was, you know, it was fun. Now the inner child that Disney represents was present in the room and it was a totally different meeting. Wow. Yeah, that can make a big difference. Yeah. Um, so every episode of the podcast, we like to give people some homework, something they can take home, do right here, right now, and get a result. Absolutely. Um, yeah. On the phone, we had talked a little bit about some exercises, and you mentioned that you had some really great exercises. So could you tell us about those and yeah, they, what people can do to get started with inner child work? Start right now while they're listening. They can just grab a piece of bond paper or even an old magazine or a newspaper. And if they have a crayon or marker around, um, that's best. If not, they can just use a, mar a, a pen. Um, but it's better to use something kind of, you know, fat that you can really scribble with. And they can just scribble with their non-dominant hand. And my definition of that is the hand they don't normally write with. Mm. Okay, So they can just start scribbling, okay? And that is the inner child at its most basic expressive form just scribbling that's where little kids start i did a podcast the other day um actually it was a a, a a visual one and um we were sitting and talking and all of a sudden it was in the evening and the two-year-old little girl of the uh, woman interviewing me woke up and came out of her bedroom and you know they're sheltering in place so she was doing her work at home and the little girl comes in and I said, oh, just, you know, give her a marker and let her scribble. And that little girl sat there for about 20 minutes 
she was no trouble at all. She didn't whine and complain. She just sat there on mom's lap. And every now and then mom would put the camera down so that, you know, the screen so you could see. And she's sitting there just scribbling away, two years old. Okay. So that's kind of the basic level of making marks on paper, not making art, not making rainbows or happy faces or anything like that. Nothing symbolic, just literally, um, you know, seeing what it's like to make marks on the paper. I call it uh, something like the tracks that ice skaters leave on the ice. They're not trying to make art. They just leave those tracks because of the movement on the page mm. uh, or on the, on the ice. But our, our scribbling is like the tracks of an ice skater. It's just our movement left behind on the page. And I also recommend if you want to use this for stress reduction is put your favorite music on. It doesn't matter what it is and just scribble to the music so that what you're doing then is what I call dancing on paper. The music is informing the movement on the page, just like it would with ice skaters. Okay. Yeah. So you want to let that music flow through your arm and your hand and just, and it can be upbeat music. It can be slow, whatever floats your boat, just do it, you know, and your mood will change. So as your mood changes, change the music. Yeah. So what's happening in the brain while you're scribbling and listening to music? What areas are being activated and what sort of effects can people expect to experience over well, time? Well, one thing that's happening is that you're really tapping into your right brain and that's your visual spatial perception, your mm -hmm. uh, sense of space, uh, your sensations in your body. So when people do this, they tend to become more aware of the colors on the page they become more aware, let's say they're working with crayons, they become more aware and they'll start remembering the smell of the crayons from uh, kindergarten. And they'll mm. start having memories about early childhood. Oh, I haven't drawn with crayons since I was in kindergarten. Oh, I remember what it was like to tear the paper off the crayons when I was in preschool. Uh, they'll start having those kind of memories. And they'll become more aware of um, experimenting with color just the way they did as kindergartners. Oh, what happens if I put this orange crayon on top of this um, purple crayon? Oh, it makes kind of a brown color if I put one on top of the other as I'm drawing. Oh, what happens if I just draw lines? What happens if I tear the paper off and turn the crayon on its side? And now I've got a big fat line that I'm making on the paper. Those are all very sensory awareness-based experiences. And that's part of the inner child, being in the body, in the senses. And it's a wonderful mindfulness practice because in mindfulness, we want to be in the very moment and we want to have all of our sensory experience. So we're smelling the crayon, you know, we're um, feeling the way it feels when we rub our fingers on it on the paper, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah. Nice. That's a very cool exercise. Um, anybody listening, if you try that exercise out, let me know by posting your inner child scribbles in the mentally fit community. Uh, I would love to see it. And I'm definitely going to try that out myself. Um, so that would, we did have, and yeah. And that would, uh, to add to that, another way to approach that is to just scribble your feelings out. So if you're feeling frustrated, if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling confused or angry or sad, or if you're uh, grieving the loss of something that you had, we're all grieving the loss of our lifestyle. 
everything's changed. Yeah. Um, we need to get those feelings out. This is a perfect way to do it. This is where the art therapy part really comes into it, is getting your feelings out on paper. What color are they? Uh, what shape are they? What mm. kind of a, a line quality is it when you're confused or when you're sad? Those are very different emotions. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I think that um, that leads into the question that we had from one of the therapists in the therapist group. Um, is there any a is there ever a bad time or a dangerous time for somebody to do this kind of work? Because for some people, if they're coming from trauma recovery or something of that, overcoming PTSD, maybe accessing these areas of the brain might bring up uh, traumatic memories. Is there ever um, a reason not to do this kind of work or any ways to protect yourself if those yeah. are challenges you're working with? Yeah, good question. Uh, I have a caveat in all of my books in the beginning of the book, where I say that if you've had um, a really abusive, traumatic childhood, or you have a history of trauma in adolescence or adulthood, um, you must be very careful using these techniques because, as you said, it could unleash a lot of very powerful emotions. Now, one of the advantages of my method is that if things get too powerful and too overwhelming, you're advised to stop. Just don't do any more writing or drawing because all my work for um, a reader is to be done on their own using a journal with drawing and writing prompts in the books. Mm. Um, but in, as I say, in all of my books, I tell people, if it starts to get too overwhelming, you need to find professional help. You do yeah. want to do this alone. You know, I, I liken this to, uh, let's say I'm home alone. I live out in the woods. My neighbors are sort of far away. Uh, maybe I hear somebody that might be a burglar at the door. Uh, I'm not going to stand out on the mezzanine balcony and shout at them because I don't want to expose myself. I'm going to go in the closet and call 911. I'm going to take the yeah. phone and quietly go in there and get help. Uh, I'm not going to try to confront that burglar on my own. First of all, I don't have a gun and I don't care to have one. And I'm five feet tall. <laughs> and there's no way that I could uh, be effective if somebody is violent or intent on burglarizing my house or hurting me. So I need to get help. So that's what I would yeah. do. Yeah, for sure. And anyone who does need help, or if you're unsure about whether or not you need help, definitely feel free to reach out to me. And I'd be happy to connect you with some therapists who have experience in that area. Um, we are running a little bit over, but I wanted to double check. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention in regards to um, inner child work? Um, and then also, where can people go to connect with you, learn more about your books and your teachings? Well, the other key uh, technique is writing with the non-dominant hand. And that's a great follow-up after scribbling one's feelings out. Uh, they can just write the feelings out with their non-dominant hand. And I have some YouTube videos about that. Um, I just produced a couple on, on my YouTube channel at Lucia Capacchioni. That's L-U-C-I-A and then C-A-P-A-C-C-H-I-O-N-E. And um, it's called The Creative Journal Goes Viral, Parts 1 and 2. And it, I just present this very simple 
idea visually of uh, scribbling your feelings out and then writing about them and having a dialogue with them back and forth between the two hands. So it's all there. And they can contact me at luciac.com, L-U-C-I-A-C.com. Um, and I also have uh, a couple of Facebook pages. Lucia Capicchioni, PhD, is one of them. And they can um, visit me there and, and get information there. But the website, luciac.com, is uh, the best place to get um, a lot of information. I train professionals. There's information about my Creative Journal Expressive Arts training program uh, and also about my books. Of course, they're all uh, listed and shown at the website. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Lucia Capacchioni. She is an incredible resource, so definitely make sure to check out her website for YouTube videos and exercises, as well as access to her online trainings and in-person workshops. If you aren't already in the Mentally Fit community, you can join us by going to joinmentallyfit.com. And again, that's joinmentallyfit.com. And once you join, I would love to hear from you about how these exercises were for you. If you want, you can definitely upload a picture of your scribblings and your drawings. I'll upload one myself. Uh, and if you want to comment yours back, I would be very interested to hear how that exercise was for you and what you get out of it. I'm really looking forward to trying it out. I hope you are too. And I hope you got a lot of value out of this talk today. I definitely know that I did. So until next time, uh, it's been great hanging out with you and talking uh, with you to Dr. Lucia, and I will see you soon. All right. Catch you later. <laughs>